0: Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is the second of two parts of chapter 5 which is entitled The Natural Enemy of the Working Class. The Lawrence Textile Strike Bread and Roses, Bayonets, and Cloth. In 1912 Massachusetts law reduced the work week for women and children from 56 hours to 54. The American Woollen Company complied with the letter of the law if not the spirit. It reduced the work week, but also made corresponding cuts in pay. In Lawrence, Massachusetts, where 60,000 people depended on the earnings of the 25,000 textile workers, and where the average wage was $8.76 per week, 25 cents more or less made an enormous difference in the workers' ability to feed their families. Thus, on January 11, when the workers received their paychecks and discovered the reduction, they walked out. First at the Everett Cotton Mill, and the following day at the Washington Mill. The Washington workers marched to the wood mill, shut off the power, and called out the workers there. By that evening, 10,000 were on strike. By the end of the month, the strike had spread to other industries, and 50,000 people in a town of 86,000 were striking. One picket sign expressed the workers' position clearly, capturing both the desperation of the moment and the hope for a better future. We want bread and roses, too." The repression of the strike was immediate and intense. Arbitrary arrests and summary judgments became the order of the day, and many strikers were sentenced to one-year prison terms without ever having the opportunity to put forth a defense. Leaders were marked for more serious charges, and extreme measures were taken to discredit the Union. When dynamite was discovered in a cobbler's shop, police and press alike were quick to blame the strikers, though there was no evidence to support such a conclusion. The tactic backfired. First, a school board member, John C. Breen, was arrested, tried, convicted, and fined $500 for planting the dynamite. Then, Ernest W. Pittman, president of Pittman Construction Company, implicated himself and several other business leaders in a confession to the district attorney. Pittman revealed that the incident had been planned by one of the textile companies, leading to conspiracy charges against Fred E. Atoe the president of the Atoe Supply Company, and William M. Wood, the president of the American Woolen Company. Regardless of the scandal, union leaders were generally blamed for any violence, not only the violence of the strikers, but that used against them as well. On January 29, when striking workers attempted to block the mill gates, the police and militia attacked and a riot ensued. An Italian striker, Anna Lo Pizzo, was shot and killed. Witnesses identified the culprit as Officer Oscar Bemois, but two IWW leaders were arrested instead. Neither of the two men, Joseph Ator or Artio Giovaniti, had been present when the shooting occurred, but the complaint alleged that, quote, before said murder was committed, as aforesaid, Joseph J. Ator and Antonio Giovanetti did incite, procure, and counsel or command the said person, whose name is not known, as aforesaid, to commit the said murder. Unquote. The police later named Joseph Caruso as an accomplice and Salvador Squito as the gunman, though no one of that name was ever located. Martial law was declared on January 30th, the day after the shooting. Colonel E. Leroy Sweetser was given charge of twelve companies of infantry, two cavalry troops, fifty cops from the Metropolitan Park Force, and twenty-two companies of militia. Citizens were forbidden to meet or talk in the streets, and Lopizzo's funeral was broken up by a cavalry charge. Mass arrests became common, and strikers were rousted from their homes and taken to jail. A Syrian striker, John Ramey, was stabbed with a bayonet and subsequently died. But the strike grew. The textile companies kept the looms running, but only as a kind of propaganda. They had no workers to operate them, and thus no product. Joseph ator com- commented from the jail, quote, bayonets cannot weave cloth, unquote. On February 5, the Italian Socialist Federation proposed evacuating the strikers' children. Supplies could thus be saved, and the children decently cared for by sympathetic families. In the three days following, they received 400 offers to take in the children. The Socialist Women's Committee and a committee of the IWW took applications and inspected the homes. On February 10, ni- 119 children were sent to New York under the supervision of four women, two of them nurses. A week later, 103 more were sent to New York and 35 others to Bar, Vermont. This exodus was embarrassing for both the government and the mill owners, and on February 17th, Colonel Sweetser announced that no more children would be allowed to leave. But if the socialist foster care system was embarrassing, the attempt to disrupt it was absolutely scandalous. On February 24, when 40 children tried to leave for Philadelphia, they found the train station full of police. A member of the Women's Committee of Philadelphia later testified before a House committee about what happened next. Quote, when the time approached to depart, the children arranged in a long line, two by two, in orderly procession, with their parents near to hand, were about to make their way to the train when the police closed in on us, with their clubs beating right and left, with no thought of children, who were in the most desperate danger of being trampled to death. The mothers and children were thus hurled in a mass, and bodily dragged to a military truck, and even then clubbed, irrespective of the cries of the panic-stricken women and children." Unquote. No further effort was made to interfere with the children, and on March 12, the American Woolen Company agreed to a new pay rate. The workers voted to end the strike, but the struggle was not over. New slogans appeared. Open the jail doors or we will close the mill gates. As the September 30 trial date for Ettore, Giovannitti and Caruso approached, textile workers in Lawrence, Haverville, Lowell, Lynn, and elsewhere threatened to strike if they were convicted. As a demonstration of their seriousness, 15,000 staged a one-day strike a few days before the trial was set to start. The police attacked the strikers, arresting 14, and almost 2,000 were fired and blacklisted. But the strikers had already seen worse, and knew something of their own strength. Amid threats of further strikes, the mill owners were forced to back down, and after 58 days of trial, all three defendants were acquitted. The 1934 San Francisco General Strike and a Reign of Terror In 1934, the West Coast witnessed an extended and at times bloody conflict between the dock workers represented by the International Longshore Association and the business interests represented by the Waterfront Employers Union and the Industrial Association. Principally, the conflict concerned the control of the longshore hiring hall and related issues of scheduling, seniority, and of course wages. The bosses preferred to arbitrate the dispute, and the union leadership was willing to compromise, but the workers had other ideas. A strike began on May 9th among longshore workers in San Francisco, and quickly spread to maritime and related industries, reaching up and down the coast. It stalled the economy of the entire country. But the center of conflict remained in San Francisco, where it escalated through a series of bloody battles to become a general strike. Violence was a major feature of the San Francisco strike, a tool used by both sides. Strikers commonly beat up scabs and sent sanitary or clean-up crews to patrol the waterfront water with bats. The bosses, however, mostly relied on the violence of the state, especially the police. This was a convenient relationship as it legitimized anti-strike violence and shifted the target of public outrage away from the employers and onto police. David Slevin emphasizes the point. The police, even more than the strikebreakers, became the striker's chief antagonist. The role of the strikebreaker was soon stabilized and contained, while police came to serve, day by day, as the employers' virtual private assault force. When the clashes came, as they did, The police, not the strike breakers, were pitted against the strikers." The violence started early and escalated throughout the strike. On the first day, the police dispersed 500 picketers with relative ease. By the end of the month, however, the pickets were fighting back, hurling bricks at the police. The cops then used clubs, gas, and eventually shotguns to break up their groups of strikers. The most serious violence accompanied efforts to operate the docks, especially attempts to move goods to or from the ports. On July 3, 1934, the police created a corridor down King Street to Pier 38, guarded by a police line on one side and a row of boxcars on the other. As trucks approached, the police sought to break up the crowd of strike supporters. They attacked with clubs, tear gas, and gunfire, injuring many in the crowd as well as numerous bystanders. A stray bullet wounded a teller in the nearby American Trust Company. Strikers retaliated by throwing rocks, bricks, and tear gas containers back at the police. At least two strikers were shot, one killed, and even 11 hospitalized, and nine cops were injured. The ILA issued a statement on the encounter. Quote, Striking pickets were clubbed down and rode over by the police, who a short time ago were supposed to be the friends of these same workers. The strike cannot and will not be settled by force." Unquote. But force seemed to be the authorities' preferred means of convincing the workers to return to their jobs. On July 5th, the entire San Francisco Police Department was put on strike duty. The fighting was concentrated in the areas surrounding Pier 38 and Rincon Hill. By the police, but the police also moved in on a crowd at Stewart and Mission near the I.L.A. hall. Suddenly, a car carrying two police inspectors appeared in the intersection. The inspectors stepped out of the car, fired their pistols into the crowd, and then fled as the crowd hurled rocks and bricks at them. Two men died in the attack: Howard S. Sperry, a longshoreman, and Nick Koundorakis, A.K.A. Nick Bordois a communist. A third man, Charles Olson, was also shot, but survived. When injured, when the injured were taken to the ILA's clinic, uh, the police fired into the building and filled it with tear gas. As the Unionists barricaded themselves in the hall, the telephone rang. Quote, Are you willing to arbitrate now? Unquote. That evening, 1,700 National Guard troops were deployed. Armored cars patrolled the streets and the Embarcadero, the street nearest the waterfront, was enclosed in barbed wire and guarded with machine guns. But the military fortifications fell short of their objective. The work remained undone. 250 ships sat idle along the coast. Even when a military guard made it possible for scabs to unload and move cargo, it just sat in the warehouses where Teamster truckers refused to touch it. As in Lawrence, the state was reminded of the practical limits of its reliance on force by the end of the day, in addition to Sperry and Bordeaux, one of the other, one other worker had been killed, and at least 115 hospitalized. Thus July 5th came to be termed Bloody Thursday. Strike leader Harry Bridges called it a reign of terror. He said, quote, it was an attack by armed men against unarmed peaceful pickets. It was a massacre of workers by the shipowners through the police, unquote. The next day, The corner of Stewart and Mission was covered with flowers. Chalked on the street were the words, Two men killed here, murdered by police. One week later, 4,000 truck drivers walked out, marking the move toward a general strike. They were quickly joined by butchers, machinists, welders, laundry workers, culinary workers, cleaners and dyers, and boilermakers. Thirteen unions, representing 32,000 workers, joined the strike. The Teamsters picketed the city's southern limits, guarding the only vehicular route to the city. There they turned back, and sometimes turned over, non-union trucks. A strike committee issued permits for hospital supplies, food, and other necessary services, but the city could not function as usual. Signs began appearing in shop windows, closed out of supplies, no gas due to the strike, closed for the duration, and closed till the boys win. The next day, the authorities declared an emergency. The police began stockpiling weapons, swore in 500 special officers, and created a, quote, anti-radical and crime prevention bureau, unquote. 1,800 cops and 4,500 National Guard troops were now on strike duty, reinforced with machine guns, tanks, and artillery. Meanwhile, across the bay, 15,000 building trades workers laid down their tools and walked off their jobs. They were joined by 27,000 workers affiliated with the Central Labor Council. On July 17th, the second day of the general strike, the police launched a coordinated attack. That morning, a group of uniformed officers and plainclothes detectives raided the Maritime Workers' Industrial Union office, breaking down the door, destroying office equipment and furniture, smashing windows, seizing records, and arresting everyone present, often delivering a beating in the process. This was the first day of a, this was the first of a day-long series of similar raids, not only in San Francisco but throughout the state. Police, National Guard troops, and vigilantes attacked radical hangouts, strike kitchens, newspapers' offices, and even a school. About 300 people were arrested. Shortly thereafter, on July 20, the strike committee voted to end the general strike, though the Longshore and Maritime workers continued striking on their own. The announcement was met with another wave of police rage and vigilante attacks. 11 days later, the last strikers returned to work. The strike had lasted 82 days and involved 30,000 dock workers. Seven were killed, hundreds were hospitalized, and thousands were treated at the ILA clinic. There were 938 arrests in San Francisco alone. In arbitration, the workers won a raise and a 30-hour work week but were only granted partial control of the hiring hall, falling short of their most important demand. The strike delivered real gains, but not the decisive victory the workers wanted. In this case, they proved unwilling to accept even a partial defeat, and the class war shifted from a campaign of massive, often deadly battles, to one of quick bloodless guerrilla actions. Both the longshore and the ship workers immediately instigated a series of on-the-job actions against unfair and dangerous conditions, and, perhaps as importantly, they changed the face of their unions and the labor movement overall. Looking back on the strike a few years later, Thomas G. Plant told a conference of longshore employers, quote, Most of us heaved a big sigh of relief and felt that the old peace and order would soon be restored, but the old order had changed, the old Union had said to us we believe our interests are common with yours we will cooperate with you in every way the new union was to say to us we believe in the class struggle and there's nothing in common between our interests and yours therefore we will hamper you at every turn and we will do everything we can to destroy your interests believing that by doing so we can advance our own class war in the 1990s and today The role of the police in suppressing organized labor during the period before World War II is well documented and relatively uncontroversial. What is often overlooked, however, is their continuation in this role since that time. The police have undergone a great many changes in the half-century since World War II, but their position in the class structure and their role in the class war have remained very much the same. For example, 65 years after the San Francisco general strike, on the opposite side of the country, dock workers were again facing a threat to their union, a recalcitrant company backed by the armed might of the state. In October 1999, Nordana Line, a Danish shipping company, announced that it would end its contract with the ILA and started using non-union workers to unload its ships. Union members began picketing the port in Charleston, South Carolina, sometimes damaging equipment, blocking access to machinery, and intimidating non-union workers. On January twenty two thousand, the police intervened with a massive display of force. 600 officers from the state law enforcement division, the state highway patrol, the Charleston County Sheriff's Office, and the police departments of Charleston, North Charleston, and Mount Pleasant, assembled in riot gear at the port's gates, a helicopter buzzing overhead. Just after midnight, about 200 workers marched from the Union Hall to the docks, chanting ILA, ILA, ILA. As the workers tried to break through the police lines the cops pushed them back with their shields the fight escalated from there with workers throwing rocks and bottles and the police using clubs tear gas and rubber bullets to drive the crowd back toward the union hall at least 10 workers and probably many more were injured most of them african americans nine workers were arrested charged with misdemeanor trespassing those charges were dismissed when the accused agreed to perform community service, but South Carolina Attorney General and gubernatorial candidate Charlie Condon filed felony riot charges against five of the workers, Kenneth Jefferson, Elijah Ford Jr., Peter Edgerton, Ricky Simmons, and Peter Washington Jr. Condon explained the importance of the prosecution, Quote, In South Carolina, a citizen's right not to join a union is absolute and will be fully protected. At the same time, he announced a comprehensive plan for dealing with union violence and attacks on police, which involves jail, jail, and more jail. The state of South Carolina placed the Charleston Five under house arrest for more than a year while they awaited trial. If found guilty, the men faced five years in prison. But after a massive international solidarity campaign ranging from free the Charleston Five posters in windows around town, to rallies at the State House, to threats to close ports around the world on the first day of the trial, Condon removed himself from the case. The new prosecutor downgraded the charges to misdemeanors in exchange for no contest pleas. Each of the five was sentenced to 30 days or a fine ranging from $100 to $309. Nordana in the meantime returned to its agreement with the ILA. This short this sort of intersection between race politics and class conflict is not unique to the South. On June 15, 1990 the Los Angeles police trapped and beat striking janitors as they marched through the Century City Business District. The janitors, who were mostly Latino, were organized as part of the Service Employees National Union's Justice for Janitors campaign. They were demanding that international service systems recognize their union. As the march entered the Century City, the 300 demonstrators found themselves surrounded by nearly 100 police. The cops blocked the exits and proceeded to arrest and beat them. Ninety people were injured, 19 of them seriously. Workers reported broken bones, a concussion, and a miscarriage as a result. Ironically, the violence brought more attention to the workers' cause than the march itself ever would have, and nine days later, ISS recognized the union. Perhaps the clearest recent case of police-managed strike-breaking is that of the Detroit newspaper strike and later lockout. In July 1995, when 2,600 employees of the Detroit News and Detroit Free Press went on strike, the newspapers, together the Detroit News Agency, responded by hiring 2,000 private security guards supplied by Vance International and by giving money to police in the suburb of Sterling Heights where the paper's production plants are located. Police initially confiscated clubs and other weapons from Vance guards, but after the Detroit News Agency's first donation, a sum of $115,921, the cops' attitudes changed. Police ignored harassment and violence on the part of the guards, even when several Vance agents beat a striker so severely they split his skull. But strike sympathizers were arrested for even minor infractions, such as blowing the horns of their cars to show support for the strike. The cops also perpetrated their own violence against the workers. Most notoriously, on August 19, 1995, a picketer named Frank Brabenek was beaten by the Sterling Heights Police. A widely published photograph showed a uniformed officer dragging Brabenek along the ground, while a plainclothes cop, later identified as Lieutenant Jack Severance, kicked him. A couple weeks later, on Saturday, September 2, the police attacked picket lines with pepper spray. The unions happened to be holding a rally nearby, and 4,000 supporters rushed to the site of the conflict. The cops called for reinforcements from 22 police agencies, and a 16-hour standoff ensued, during which time trucks could not enter or leave the plant. Two days later, on Labor Day, a smaller crowd fought with the security guards. Those first few weeks set the tone for the next five and a half years, until December 2001 when the unions finally gave in. Only a third of the striking workers were rehired, at lower wages, of course. It's hard to know how much of the blame for this defeat really falls to the police, especially given the poor planning of the union's media hostility and court orders limiting the number of strikers on picket lines, but it's easy to see what the cooperation of the police was worth to the Detroit News Agency. During the course of the strike, the company donated nearly a million dollars to the Sterling Heights Police. Police violence escalated accordingly, and crowds took to chanting, Bought and paid for when the cops arrived. Mayor Dennis Archer explained that riot police helped to preserve a good business climate. Class conflict, continuity and change. These recent events indicate how little has changed over the course of a century. Naturally, strikes and other labor actions still focus on many of the same issues, Since there's a permanent conflict of interest between workers and their employers when it comes to matters of pay, hours, and control, and in the clashes between workers and capital, the police continue to line up on the side of capital. But the differences between these later disputes and those of the early 20th century are also clear enough. Violence persists, but at lower levels. Battles between police and workers, while sometimes bloody, are rarely deadly. These reduced levels of violence are the result of a shift in the form of class conflict. Unionization, collective bargaining, and even strikes have been formalized, institutionalized, and subject to legal regulation. Increasingly, this development has taken the struggles of workers out of the factories and the streets and placed them instead in courthouses and government offices. Companies, then, have come to rely less on police or Pinkerton thuggery to keep workers in line. At the same time, the militancy of the labor movement overall has suffered and sustained decline and the power within unions has shifted away from the rank and file and toward the overall leadership the paid staff and the legal advisors this process was already taking hold at the time of the san francisco general strike of 1934 in fact the strike may be seen as the workers direct resistance to the institutionalization of class conflict on two fronts First, in their refusal to submit substantive issues to arbitration, and second, in following the leadership of rank-and-file members, like Harry Bridges, rather than obeying the orders of Union officials. The depth of this resistance, the degree to which workers refused to play by the prescribed rules and rejected the given definitions of victory and defeat, is evident in the continuation of the struggle even after they had returned to work. The strike ended, but the workers did not surrender. They, in effect, moved the conflict to an arena where the influence of the union officials, the courts, and the police could not be minimized, and where the strength of the workers was greatest on the shop floor. The institutionalization of class conflict has changed unions and strikes, certainly. It has also changed the means of controlling the working class, and the role of the police in particular. Police tactics, strategies, and organization have all changed as the forms of conflict have changed. All the while, the basic aims of policing, control the powerless, defense of the powerful, have remained essentially the same. The relationship between these changes and continuities will be examined in the chapters that follow. That's the end of chapter 5. The next chapter is called Police Autonomy and Blue Power.